This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Whose Woods Are These edition. It's Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. On today's show, Hulu brings us an adaptation of the true crime bestseller Under the Banner of Heaven. It stars Andrew Garfield as a Mormon detective whose faith in his own faith is being tested by the grisly murder of a young woman. She, in turn, had tested the boundaries of propriety as defined by the LDS Church. Uh, show also stars Daisy Edgar Jones. And then Petite Maman is a small and exquisitely French film about two eight-year-old girls becoming fast friends. It's a slice-of-life gem with a huge twist. And finally, the legacy of Frederick Law Olmsted, best known for designing Central Park, is the subject of a New Yorker article by Alexandra Lang. Um, She explores whether his legacy can still be a living one in our blessedly more woke world. I'm joined, though, there's just such a melancholy to that verb this week. I'm joined by Julia Turner, who's in studio, even though I'm not. Julia, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry I didn't get get 3D Steve, but I'm sitting here with 3D Dana, which is a delight. You're a third of the way there. Imagine podcasting, looking at Dana's lovely mug, having thoughts, (sighs) expressing ideas. Wowza. All right. I'm going to take the, the empty part of that mug and say I was so looking forward to recording all three of us in the studio, which is vanishingly <laughs> rare even in non-COVID times. And we were going to have lunch afterward. And I personally am I'm sad, um, but happy okay. to have you on the line. Yeah. Can I just say that there's one pair of ribs left on my body between which you haven't inserted the FOMO <laughs> knife? <laughs> <laughs> now talk about the 3D cookies that Dana brought into the studio. Oh, yeah. They're crunchy and butterscotchy. Go in for the kill. Finish the job. Yeah, crunchy and butterscotchy. Kind of like your presence <laughs> on the air. I'm re- just going to prop one up in Steve's chair and kind of wiggle it a little <laughs> bit while you talk. With googly eyes. Yeah. How easy it is to replace me with a cookie. I mean, I'm kind of honored? I don't know. Anyway, I will say also, though, for those who don't know, you are the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Dana. Hey, hey. We have a lot of extracurriculars this week. Let's knock one uh, out of the way and out of the park right away, which is you have an event coming up that I am determined to go to unless I get COVID again. Uh, let's talk about it. That's right. I've been announcing my book events in the last couple of weeks so that people have something of a heads up uh, because there aren't that many places that I can yell about them. It's basically here on Twitter. This week, what I have coming up is a book event, not for myself, but for longtime beloved friend of the podcast, Jody Rosen, whose new book, Two Wheels Good, is coming out next week. It's a book about the history of the bicycle. And I'm very honored about this. Jody chose me to interview him at his launch event. So that is going to be next Monday night at 7. I believe it's also being live streamed. And uh, and I'll be interviewing him at the Books Are Magic bookstore at 7 p.m. Okay. And can you tell me the date, precise date in May in case someone listens to this podcast? You know, It is Monday, May 23rd at 7 p.m. EST. All right. Shall we make a show? You guys ready? Let's do it. Yeah. All right. Well, Under the Banner of Heaven is a 1980s period piece. It's one of those, as I understand it, 
collaborations between FX and Hulu. You can see it streaming on Hulu. It's based on the true crime bestseller by John Krakauer. It stars Andrew Garfield as Detective Jeb Pyrie, a Mormon cop who must investigate the murder of a young mother and her infant child. Brenda is played by Daisy Edgar Jones, and she's married into a very prominent Mormon family. They're a huge, sprawling but tight-knit clan uh, who's under the thumb of an almost Old Testament-like patriarch and dominated utterly by the men in the family. He's had all boys, the patriarch. So it's a bunch of brothers, their wives, and their many, many, many kids. The show also flashes back to the founding of the Mormon church, upon which it casts, I would say, an extremely skeptical I, there's a continuity between then and now, and it's not found in faith, but more in patriarchy and violence. Uh, these are the assertions of the show, I would argue. Anyway, Jeb's cop partner is Bill Taba, an ex-Vegas cop, and to put it mildly, a non-Mormon. He's a member of the, I'm going to mispronounce it, the Paiute tribe, uh, and they're the original claimants to Utah's land. He has a wry outsider's view on the Mormon folkways, which seem to be compromising the investigation at every term, even as the investigation begins to undermine Jeb's own faith. Let's uh, let's listen to a clip. Uh, in the clip, we're going to hear the Andrew Garfield character, Detective Pyree. He's questioning Alan Lafferty, whose wife and baby have been killed. Uh, Pyree, as I said, is a practicing Mormon. Alan, meanwhile, the suspect, has parted ways with the LDS church. All right, let's, uh, let's listen. Are you certain that the men who did this were all strangers? Is it possible that any could have been family? Certain. No. I can't ever be certain about anything again. But I have learned to live with doubt. Do you ever feel doubt? I told you we're not here to talk about me. Now things change when you have kids. You know, the things you used to ignore, they get under your skin. Especially if you have girls. You want the best for them. And I could not see how the best for my little girl was being caught up in a church that would force her to make covenants to obey all men for the rest of her life. Do you have daughters? Stop it, stop it. Alan, stop. I asked the questions. If you keep wasting precious time, you're going to find yourself with an accessory charge. Julia, I'll start with you. What uh, would you make of this? My main takeaway from this is that I should go back and read John Krakauer's Under the Banner of Heaven because <laughs> I never read it. I liked some of his other nonfiction. Um, and it seems clear from this uh, show that the portion of that book that is about the about Mormon history itself and the beliefs that are embedded within it and the various ways in which it evolved into different sets of beliefs and splinters um, are so important to the book and so interestingly done that they are included as part of this miniseries. But boy, howdy, do they not work? <laughs> like, and, and, you know, meanwhile, you're in sort of what feels like prestige true crime territory with like an interesting actor in Andrew Garfield playing a complicated cop who is solving a grisly murder and the way in which that murder is told and the story of the family and the the unspooling of the suspense and the various characters and the suspicious brothers. Like I'm, en I'm enjoying is maybe a tough word, but I think that's well done. Interestingly told, you know, uh, Dustin Lance Black, who is the um, showrunner here, 
himself was raised Mormon and I think it engages interestingly with the material and, and sensitively, although, of course, there have been some responses from Mormons who who decry the show. But it, just like these characters in the middle of the interrogation rooms will be like, it's like when so-and-so from such-and-such such did such-and-such such on the prairies. And then, like, a woman in a bonnet is in, like, ye olde Laura Ingalls Wilder garb. And, like, massacres are happening and horses are galloping into the wilds. And it's just, like, none of those people in the that chunk of the show feel fully rounded in any fashion they feel like they're doing like a tableau vivant of mormon history for some reason which is a very mormon thing to do right i mean tableau vivants i just remember in in angels in america there's a lot of sort of you know lampooning of this sort of style of presentational art in mormon settings that has to do with reenacting historical moments and the fact that this show which is written by a mormon or former mormon dustin lance black and i want to get into that you know that he is in fact a lapsed mormon himself um that he was not more able to integrate those scenes dramatically with the rest of the show seems odd. And I wonder as well how Krakauer did it. I I mean, I doubt that the book would have been the hit that it was and that most of Krakauer's books are if he had not integrated that story more successfully. Well, I mean, what the review says, there's no detective plot. So in the the Krakauer book, you're learning about the murder and you're learning about the past and you're sort of, I think probably the suspense comes from untangling how much is this murderous splinter sect of Mormonism you know, the opposite of what historical Mormonism was or the natural evolution of some of its darkest beliefs, I gather. I mean, this is me just like guessing based on watching the show, but that feels like it could have its own narrative tension within the confines of a nonfiction book. But basically they like added the detective to make it work for TV, but, you know, maybe they just needed to have illusions. I don't know. It's just it's just so... You know, it's like one of those f- kids flip books where it's like a hippo head and a hippo body and then just like a horse butt. Yes, and you're like, I, exactly <laughs> what is the right. horse butt doing here? Yeah, my God. I mean, and I'll just say quickly, Dana, before throwing you, uh, to me, it was all horse butt. I just thought this is not peak TV. This is Nader TV. And no. it made me think, I thought it was, I'm sorry. I mean, let me also say quickly, boy, howdy, Julia is my favorite, Julia. That was great. That was very fun. But I, I just had no patience for this, Dana. I can't, I can't, with hockey, I just, I have to blurt it out. I just thought this was transcendently awful. I thought none of the actors looked prepared or like they knew what they were doing or that they enjoyed saying their lines. It, 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 even I think the clip we played conveys it. I mean, Garfield to me seems lost here. He's like, who the hell is this character and what is he doing? I thought it was just. I un, un, really honestly, I gave it close to three hours. I thought it was unwatchably bad. Wow, I think I, I disagree with that pretty strongly. Like, in fact, I found it kind of lullingly watchable, with the exception of the you know the Joseph Smith Mormon parts, which are just like time to make a cup of tea because the lady in the bonnet is back. <laughs> but but Andrew Garfield, then again, I'm just I I'm going through a huge period of just crushing so hard on Andrew Garfield as an actor specifically. I mean, he's a very mm. likable presence. He's he's a movie star type, you know, so he has that star quality that sort of draws your eye, even if it's not the greatest dialogue. But yeah, Andrew Garfield is brilliant. When I saw him as as Pryor in Angels in America, I sort of revised my opinion of him. Like, he's not just a likable guy who's a cute Spider-Man and who's fun and romantic leads. He can do anything. And then I saw him in Tick, Tick, Boom. Not a great movie, but wait, he can sing. He can dance. He can be funny. I'm so into Andrew Garfield, and I think he kind of seals the deal on that 
somewhat artificial detective narrative that's slapped onto the show. I also think Gil Birmingham as his partner is really good, and I disagree that they yes. seem disinterested. I think for once, more so than in True Detective, their connection doesn't seem like something contrived, like the two cops who are so different in their styles and yet they mesh. You actually sort of believe that they're becoming friends. And Gil Birmingham's character, Detective Taba, the Native American guy who's not a Mormon, was never a Mormon and is somewhat on the outside of, of this culture. And every other character in the show practically is to some degree involved with the Mormon church you know, provides this kind of proxy for the viewer, like the only person who curses. It's kind of cool to see a detective show where everybody is not spewing obscenities at every moment. And when someone does, upstanding Andrew Garfield, Mormon cop, notices it and objects to it. Okay, then I'm going to take a quick walk in these woods. See if I can find those furry sons of guns who ripped this place to shit. Uh, Bits. Thank you. I think there's a kind of a freshness in seeing that world. The other thing I had to say about the Mormonism of the show is just that I can completely see why Mormons would be offended by it because whether or not this was Dustin Lance Black's intention or not, I mean, it really makes the entire religion look pretty culty. I mean, it's it's sort of contrasting this very fundamentalist family who's doing some practices that are, in fact, outside the directives and laws of the church with people like the Daisy Edgar Jones character, the young woman who ends up being murdered or who is murdered from scene one and we see only in flashback. Um, She comes from a more forgiving and somewhat progressive Mormon family who believes, for example, that she should go to college and have a job. Um, So there's that conflict that's played out. But really, all sides of the church come off looking pretty bad in this show. And, uh, you know, as a person who's pretty unconnected with the Mormon church, that doesn't personally offend me. But it doesn't surprise me at all that, you know, there may be Mormon organizations rising up against their representation on the show. That said, Justin Lance Black grew up in the church, left the church for what sounds like a very personal reason. I mean, he hasn't talked about it in detail, but I think his mother was physically abused by his father in the church in his eyes, at least, didn't condemn that or do enough about it. And he, I think, sees it as a really patriarchal and violent institution. But there's a moment, I believe in the second episode, where one of the characters says something to the Andrew Garfield character, a very upright and believing Mormon, something like, the men in our church, they do evil, you know. And he's essentially saying, look at yourself, look into your own proper upstanding Mm law-abiding Mormon life and see the patriarchy and the violence that's inscribed there. You know, I like conceit of the show, which is that there's actually an, a really horrific continuity between the you know patriarchy and violence of the original Mormon church. This is the logic of the show. I have no independent opinion on this. And th- the fate of this young woman, um, potentially the best part of the show, is simply the kind of drama of manners of a, of a you know, by, I think, the standards of the hosts of the show, like a modestly cosmopolitan young woman of ambition, right? She wants to get into TV and be a presenter. She's facing um, sexism there, which I think is interestingly depicted. I think the actress Daisy Edgar Jones is is a bright spot in this, along with Birmingham. She's she's really terrific. She just it, it's important that she adds color and life to a family that's the endowing one another to death. Um, and um, and you know, of course, someone like that coming in from the S- outside is just implicitly a referendum on the hypocrisy and and invol- you know, sort of involuted logic of a of a of a clannish family in in modern America, and the resentment they feel automatically, also the kind of seduction, you know. But there's just I'll give you a scene that was just like it was such a profound turnoff for me. Like I could hear the director saying to one of the actors playing the brother, who's the closest thing to a worldly brother in some sense um 
And it, you just hear the director saying to the actor, okay, crowd her a little bit. The first time he meets her, like crowd her at the picnic a little bit, like be, be kind of ambiguously oversexual with her or whatever. And he just, it's just so over, it's so freaking overplayed. This could have been such an interesting moment. And I'm like, I, I hear the script notes. I hear the script meeting on this. I don't, I'm not watching something real. I felt that way over and over and over again. It could have been good. I just didn't, it was, it was the horse's butt attached to the the horse's butt attached to the horse's butt. <laughs> I, I went back to it being terrible. Sorry. <laughs> you talked yourself out of coming around. Yeah. But it all, there's just like too much going. It's only seven episodes. We're supposed to do all of Mormon history, the Tableau Vivant, you know, frenetic crosscut, Mormon Kennedy, dissolution, anti-tax. It's just all too much except for except for Gil Birmingham and, and Detective Taba. And, the you know, the show does an interesting thing where he's like the outsider entree character for you know, audiences that don't know a ton about Mormonism. So you've got sort of like the the white other culture and then you've got the kind of Native American sardonic man about town is the is the entry point character. And that that's like an interesting flip on what we typically see on TV in a way that's refreshing. Yeah, and important to this story because it puts the lie to the Mormon claim as presented in the show, which is you know, the anti-tax ideology is based on the sense that we were here before the government was. We were the original settlers. And to have a native character who basically, without saying it, is like, uh, I call bullshit, right? Um, anyway, Under the Banner of Heaven, you can watch it streaming on Hulu. Um, <laughs> more courage to you if after our segment you do that. But if you disagree, I would love to hear it. And if you're offended by the portrayal of the LDS church, um, we'd also love to hear that. So shoot us an email. Okay, let's move on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast we discuss business. Dana, what do you got? Stephen, our only item of business today is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment, which this week comes from a listener question, a really good one from a listener named Daniel, who writes, Dear Gabfesters, I was wondering if you could talk about your own experiences with editing, either editing others or being edited. Are there notable instances in which you found that editing saved you or your writer from indulging your worst tendencies as a writer? Are there instances where you feel an editor sent you off course and damaged a piece that could have been much better? So this is an excellent question. I'm sure we all have lots to say about it, not least because Julia worked as an editor for many years, whereas Steve and I have been working for them for many years. So we will answer Daniel's question and ramble about our editing experiences, positive and negative, after the show. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that bonus segment automatically at the end of this program. If you are not, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, what's next? Marion and Nellie are two eight-year-old girls. They're out exploring in the woods near each of their respective houses, and they meet each other for the first time and become fast friends. There is a huge twist here. I'm going to take a little time to explain it. Let me say, if you want to see this movie unspoiled, you may want to fast forward through this segment. I will say that every review of this film says what I'm about to say right up front, as does the Wikipedia entry, as does, in a way, the title of the film, Petite Maman. And the twist comes very near the beginning of the film. Nonetheless, I did see it not knowing. I liked that. So up to you. But here we go. These two girls look almost like twins. No accident. They're actually played by actresses, young actresses who are twins. But in the conceit of the film, they're actually mother and daughter. They've come together through some unexplained fracture in time in the woods to meet as peers, as girls of the same age and sensibility who grow to love one another. And the girl who is the daughter understands what is happening and is mystified by it as we are. Um, 
we'll get into it, but I should say up front, it has less in common with a Star Trek episode or the movie Arrival. It's more to me like The Little Prince or The Grand Moulinet, uh, if I'm saying that right. Uh, it's kind of a French mini genre of the child who finds an enchanted non-place stuck in non-time. Um, and it's neither temporal nor eternal in essence, but somehow both. The beauty of this movie is in its evanescence, as proven by the fact that our crack producer Cameron cannot extract a clip from it. It is all in French, and it has, with the exception of one song near the end of the film, it has no soundtrack. Uh, there's no way to convey it's it's beautiful and hush. We didn't want it. a clip of just the trees like sighing and rustling. I, there's a lot that. of like <laughs> potent rustling. I love it. Well, you've made the last line of my intro come true with your uh, rude interruption. Um, as I wrote here, it says, it means we get to start talking about it right away. Off we go. Dana Stevens, let me start with you. I haven't in my introduction said who's responsible for this remarkable little gem. Talk a little bit about who that is. Celine Siama, who's the writer-director of this movie, uh, also made Portrait of a Lady on Fire. That was sort of her breakthrough film outside of France, although not at all her, her first film or her first great film. And uh, and so it's an interesting next step to take. I mean, if you saw Portrait of a Lady on Fire or read about it, you know that it's in its way sort of grand scale. I mean, it has a, a modesty and a restraint to it that this film shares, but it is a sweeping period romance, a lesbian love story. It, you know, it takes on, I would say, a bigger kind of metaphysical burden to chew on than this movie. Although in its way, this little 72 minute long movie, I don't know if you mentioned that, Steve, but this movie is so short as to barely constitute a feature length film. Uh, it, it's it's going into a completely different territory. Uh, and yet not. We can talk about that, too. But anyway, the, you would not have expected after essentially getting um, the right to make any sort of movie she wanted that Celine Siama would go so small uh, to me. And we can we can get into why I think that this may be a weaker film than Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I want to hear what you guys think of it before I share my few reservations about it. But in general, I would enthusiastically send people to this very unusual, very spare, beautifully constructed and structured and written uh, little fairy tale. Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked about on this show, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which we discussed for this podcast, was the last film I saw in theaters before the pandemic. And I've said several times, I think, like, if that were the end of my movie-going experience, I would have been happy. Like, yeah, it was, that movie is, is perfect. So, uh, I mean, to compare whatever she does next to it is in a way unfair. Yeah, like, to me, it's sort of like, okay, after some great composer wrote, like, a landmark symphony, they, like, you know, did a little etude, and and it, and it was good, and also of the same caliber of work, but, like, not as grand an undertaking. Um, you know, a Portrait of a Lady on Fire seemed like it was about, like, the being of women like womenhood capital w and art capital a and like whether the twain can meet yet without being as stodgy as that could easily be yes and this film is like a it's like a novella from a grand novelist or or it, it has the quality of a sketch to it but so it's only my second Celine Shama film and I'm like going straight to the archives like I cannot get enough of this woman and her eye and her work and you know, she's not the first female filmmaker in history, right? Like, she's she's not, um, you know, alone in her effort to study how girls become women and what it means to be a woman. And again, I'm making these things sound so ponderous, but, like, there's something about the freshness of her eye 
and the clarity with which she sees female selfhood that feels like it's the first time you've seen it on screen or something. Like, I'm struggling to put it into words, but you just, I didn't feel like I could remember seeing girlhood studied so attentively in a movie. And you just kind of are watching this girl go through life and all of her basic movements seem sort of marvelous and interesting and and throw you back into like how strange the world seemed when you were a kid. And then you see this girl meet this other girl who looks uncannily like her, but the the way that the camera sets up the tension and suspense of like, are they the same girl? Does the girl look exactly like her? Like you kind of can't tell for like a couple scenes exactly how similar they look or what the hell is going on um but meanwhile they're they're building suspense out of like pouring hot you know being an eight-year-old pouring hot milk into a bowl like just the the attention to the mundane and to the feminine feels so radical to me and i i'm probably just a poor student of film history but i just love it and i really enjoyed this although i i don't i wouldn't like put it on the same pedestal as i put the previous film yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I, I would, but I'm, I'm, I maybe wasn't exactly the target audience for the first one, or maybe I was, but my own mulishness missed it or something. But I mean, I, I admired that movie, but didn't love it. I loved this movie. Hmm. Um, I regard it as an almost perfect film in its way. I love the courage of the small, the quiet, and the and the short. I think that that's not a small thing, Dana. You're absolutely right. To make something that's 70 or minutes or so long and just exquisitely perfect, it didn't require padding. Um, it doesn't have a ton of dialogue on the page. No music with one small exception takes an enormous, enormous amount of confidence. And um, I admired that about it. Um, this is a deep movie about matrilineal inheritance, right? I mean, it's about motherhood in a way that it's it you you haven't ever seen it before. This is the first time you've ever seen it told exactly this way. I also think, to the extent I sense how this movie was made, effectively she made a tiny and you could argue maybe beautiful but somewhat not inconsequential. I wouldn't want to go that far, but. A slice of life movie about two girls becoming fast friends, right? Kind of randomly in the middle of the woods becoming fast friends. And um, and it was filmed in a, Verite is not right at, a way at all. You don't feel as though the camera is a fly on the wall. Um, it's, it's more that it was very um, uh, consciously matter of fact in its style. So just as you say, uh, Julia, these little gestures are pregnant with the meanings of childhood where your perspective as a child is ratcheted down often to tiny little objects. And because you aren't integrated fully into the world, you create imaginative worlds that you can fully immerse yourself in as the world. Watching the girls do that as a father of a daughter who wasn't that long ago, eight years old, and having seen her do it, this was so uh, powerfully evocative for me. And then around that is this sci-fi-like premise that just doesn't get explored at all. It's like, it It reminded me a teeny tiny bit of La Jetée, that the great, very short movie, I mean, it's maybe 20 minutes or a half an hour long, about kind of the looping cycles of time. It doesn't, it just doesn't dwell on that. It's not, it's getting at something else, which is that, and I had never thought this thought before, um, but it's getting at the difference between patrimony and matrimony, right? I mean, just this insane 
discrepancy built into the language whereby patrimony means the legal inheritance of property from father to son and matrimony means women marrying men right like legally recognizing their status through marriage and this is like no 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 no. this is matrimony as a corollary to patrimony this is this inheritance that we can only be partially conscious of because it doesn't have the same formal recognition exactly in the law but it's not purely biological right it's like this deep connection between generations of women and it's as much about the grandmother as it is about the mother and where and how that might get broken and repaired i mean that is so powerfully moving i don't want to spoil the ending i won't in the least little bit spoil the ending but gosh i mean talk about the balance of the said and the unsaid um and the reparative work that's happened quietly under the surface of this film i just thought it was this, just uh, that rare species of 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 small but perfect. I I, I adored it. Tell us your quibbles, Dana. Okay, my quibble probably makes me look worse than it makes the movie look. And in fact, before we taped, I was mocked by Dan Coyce, who knows what my reservation about Petite Maman is. And he was saying, ha ha, you have to say it on mic and you're going to look mean. So my main quibble, which I have to say my viewing partner shared, and I say it as lovingly as I can because I'm talking about child actors, is that one of the two twin sisters who plays the mom-kid pair as children is a good actor and the other is not very good. (laughs) And one of them is capable of handling this very spare, restrained, difficult to deliver kind of dialogue that Celine writes. Because actually, Steve, when you say slice of life, I somewhat disagree. I don't think these kids Mm. talk and behave exactly like kids that I know. No, it's a little they don't bit fairy like adults tale. either, but it's a yeah. little fable-ish. Right. They right, have a kind then, of they have a, a sobriety of demeanor that no kid would always have. Even the most somber kid would have more gabbling, goofy moments. But that is, as Julia says, that's part of the whole fairy tale logic. I have no objection to the dialogue sounding like that. I'm just saying that it requires a very special eight-year-old, or they're supposed to be eight, maybe they're a tiny bit older in real life, but not much. It requires a special eight-year-old to be able to deliver that kind of dialogue. And I think that the girl, well, I will make you guys guess, what? because you probably well, disagree okay. and you probably think I'm just, I'm being a really haggy, no, mean I'm critic so, who hates children. so interested. <laughs> and God no, it's, bless it's both a... these girls for taking on this incredible project. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're on, both yeah, awesome. Yeah, okay. And they have some very sweet moments together kind of improvising as sisters. But when it comes to saying the words that Celine Siama put on the page, one of them can do it better than the other I mean, one? I know which my guess is. I mean, I can I just say one thing? First of all, how deliciously off-brand it is for Dana to be cruel to children on mic. <laughs> I, I applaud her for the courage. Off mic, um, though, I'm infamous for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But let me also say that I'm, I'm like, I suffer from clothes blindness, so I continually couldn't remember which one was Marion and which one was Nellie anyway. I didn't see a huge difference in the in the acting. I didn't note one at all, but I don't know, Julia, it sounds like maybe you did. Uh, I mean, it did not occur to me in the watching to make a distinction. But now that you say this, I feel like Nellie certainly can silently hold, maybe she can't speaking, but Nellie seems to hold the camera, the character we meet first. And mm. Marion, her kid mom, Petit Maman, is... I guess I would guess be the one that you think is the worst actress. Yep, you nailed it. It's, it well, and would it make sense that Celine Siama would give the the harder part, the girl who's yeah, on screen yeah. every single moment, to you know the the twin who's I think more capable of handling the dialogue. I you know it's interesting. I think the way I experience what you're describing in the film is that the mom kid character felt less real to me, 
And maybe that was a failure of acting. But to me, it contributed to this feeling of like, is this even real? Is this all in her head? Like there's a moment where Marion meets the dad character and and she's sort of standing on the edge of the room. Oh, like yes. you, like yep. usually Nellie is going into the past. But then there's one scene where Marion comes into the present. And you kind of think maybe the dad character is going to be like, what? Yep. You know, but then he's like, or, or oh, hello, hello Marion. Or Marianne. can't see her, right? Yeah, that there's going to be, some, you know, somehow he gets folded into the magic world where they can time hop in this fashion. Um, and yeah, so I, I do not think you're cruel. I think you are doing your job as a critic, assessing what you have seen on screen. And look, pro- projects with child actors are really hard to do because it's hard to find children who can pull it off. I felt like the actress who played Nellie is so good and so charismatic that it all kind of worked for me. Right. I would also say, and I totally agree with that, I would say it is a slice of life film, at least along the fringes, where you see her interacting with her actual older parents, right? The father especially, like cutting his beard with him, whatever. That's classic slice of life cinema. The other thing I'd say is, you know, to get into this film at all, you're taking this enormous leap, right? You are, your disbelief is suspended quite high. I think that's, the film makes it very easy for you to do that. Once you've done that, I went with it. I just never once considered either one of them a deficient um, actress in any way, shape, or form. And I found their play so believable. Clearly, some of those scenes were like, set the camera. Okay, guys, make pancakes, right? Oh, I agree. agree. When she lets them just interact as sisters. And and you see that in interviews with Siyama, too, that she loves working with children. She's made many coming-of-age movies before about about kids, usually a little bit older, like tweens. But children are a a big theme in her filmmaking, little girls specifically. And and you can tell that she is essentially engaging them in play before the camera when they're building a little fort and things like that. And those things are all all wonderful i mean i'm really specifically talking about line delivery i I understand no i understand okay it's petite mama um it's currently only in theaters i would say this is really worth seeking out i think we all whatever quibbles aside it's 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 worth seeking out uh highly highly recommended okay moving on all right, well, um, the next segment is um, about public parks, but we're going to start with the peg, our peg for it, uh, an admirable um, piece in The New Yorker by Alexandra Lang about the legacy of Frederick Law Olmsted. Um, and I think it asks, uh, Julia, maybe I'll start with you. It, it asks a very, um, in its way, poignant and relevant question, which is in a, I would say, blessedly more woke world, whether Olmsted's legacy is and can be a living one. And she quotes a UCLA professor professor who teaches urban planning and urban about urban green spaces. And she says what she finds has most purchase among her students, quote, is the idea that the green space has a history of exclusion, even though the original ideals might have been different. Um, and I, I think that that's an interesting place to start. We'll, we'll expand off of that. But the idea that, you know, the pretense to utopian slash Arcadian inclusion in cities, which tend to be otherwise very congested, polluted, and class-stratified, um, hasn't always been really a true one historically. That Surely that resonates. I mean, d- d- uh, what did you make of that? I thought this was a really interesting piece. I mean, I grew up in Boston, which is a city that, that is studded with Frederick Law Olmsted Parks, and then I lived for 20 years in New York, which obviously has, in both Central Park and Prospect Park, 
you know, halcyon examples of the work of him and his firm. Uh, and now I live in Los Angeles where there are a wealth of state and national parks that are accessible to me uh, and the, you know, kind of culture of California and the West Coast is that as that public access to the coast is a right that is much more robustly held and defended than it is on the East Coast in a way that's really interesting when you think about public natural space, but where largely instead of urban parks, we just have private golf courses. And so mm-hmm. yeah. um, I, I just am now in a, in a city with a very, very different relationship to to park space. And um, the thing that I found most interesting in this piece was actually the observation about the role that Olmsted played in the evolution of thinking about landscape mm. and urban planning in America, um, and, you know, described him as, as a son of Connecticut, and then says, popularizing the term landscape architecture, which Olmsted did, and transforming the discipline into a licensed Ivy League pursuit, as his son did, cut off its history and its practitioners from the millennia of expertise acquired by humans working on the land. Fleming prefers to teach a longer history of landscape architecture that includes indigenous communities and the ways in which they continue to design the land, as well as radical groups like Britain's diggers who used gardening as a way of taking back public space and building political power. So, you know, the the, the notion of coming from Boston and New York, both stuffy East Coast cities with their own relationships to nature. Um, it was interesting to think about Olmsted in a different light as someone who who both designed these beautiful public spaces I've enjoyed, but public spaces that may be displaced communities or also um, do, a, do a better job of making some people feel welcome than others. I mean, I actually went bird watching this morning in Central Park with a friend and walked through the ramble and a dog scampered past us off leash and we were both remembering, you know, the confrontation that took place between the black bird watcher and the white woman walking her dog, uh, you know, that that was an electrifying source of debate a couple years ago. Um, You know, so the question of how these parks make you feel like you belong in them and in general how public space opens itself up to to people of all walks of life. um, It's fascinating how you do that through the plan of the park itself, through the, you know, transit infrastructure you build around it, through uh, all, all kinds of design choices that help create a sense of community and place. Yeah, I've, I appreciated that this this article we're talking about de-romanticized or de-idealized Olmsted, who certainly in, in New York urban design, you know, sort of normal conversations or histories is thought of as somebody who brought green space to the city as opposed to deprived people of their homes in order to build a classist landscape, right? I mean, the idea that those two stories are braided together and coexist is fascinating. I wish this particular article had gone a bit deeper into specifically, um, you know, outside of that critique what new designers of parks are doing. Um, It would have been great, for example, even to have some interactive elements of getting to go and explore. I sort of wanted to see somebody walk me through a design of a non-Olmsteady public space and why it's more successful. And uh, and I'm not sure. And I also just kept waiting for the anti-car, the part that was going to be about sort of anti-car activism and how highways have transformed the landscape since Olmsted's time. And I think I I, I was waiting for a little bit uh, more meat on the bones of this particular piece. But it did spark ideas that I want to ask you guys about, including, Julia, even though you just spoke, I still want to ask you at some point to talk about the emerald necklace, which was this this phrase I'd never heard for the way that the, the Olmsted parks in Boston are designed to kind of connect to each other and create this green 
path throughout the city. That seemed really fascinating, and it's just also a lovely name. I just wondered if you had an experience. It's a beautiful name, and it actually requires me to make a disclosure because my mom, for a long time, was on the board of the Emerald Park Conservancy, and I, you know, as a journal working journalist, like don't really donate to nonprofits or foundations very much, lest there be some conflict of interest. But I have donated. I need to stipulate to our listeners I have donated to both the Central Park Conservancy and the Emerald Necklace Conservancy. So uh, take my She's in the park, pocket of big my park. park shilling for, uh, with the appropriate <laughs> grains of salt. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the notion there, you know, mounted in the piece is the idea that perhaps the Emerald Necklace is a better model for future parks than something like Central Park, where, you know, big swaths of terrain are all bundled together uh, and made into one grand space that, you know, makes all the land immediately adjacent to it much more valuable and then creates a hierarchy of, of place uh, in, in in a way that has, has class and economic implications um, and racial ones too, no doubt. I think the idea being advanced is that smaller parks that are more distributed in more types of neighborhoods is perhaps a more democratic and useful way to structure landscapes. And, you know, that's obviously one of the big public critiques of both the High Line and then more recently Little Island, which I haven't been to yet, which is that if all of the money that had been raised by private sources to make those like luxury parks in the sky or that you have to get to by boat or whatever bridge, I haven't been, again, haven't been to Little Island, um, had just been like equally doled out to like every public park in New York to make it like that much nicer for the people who lived near it. You know, how much better would that have been for the city than kind of creating a pocket of West Chelsea and the meatpacking district that, you know, suddenly could spring up like luxury apartment towers around it. Um, You know, and I think you can probably argue it both ways, like a bunch of distributed parks all over the place getting modestly better might, you know, have been less effective in some fashion of like raising consciousness of the idea of the value of public space or might have had less like economic value for New York and its labor force or something. I'm sure you I'm sure you can study it and argue it many ways and that people have. Yeah. So let me give you an example of my relationship to Olmstead. In addition to, of course, you know, adoring Prospect Park in Brooklyn, some people say the the better version of of Central Park and, and what Central Park has been to Manhattan that I grew up in. Um, you know, I was Driving in Troy, New York, a city of about 50,000, in many ways a troubled city of about 50,000, north of me by about 40 minutes. It's a city for various reasons I have occasion to return to frequently. And I passed its, I believe it's called Prospect Park. And I said, that had to have been designed by Olmsted. I mean, just even along the periphery, it gives off so precisely the same vibe as the major parks in New York City. Well, it turns out it wasn't, but it was designed uh, in direct, very direct homage to Prospect Park in Brooklyn by another designer influenced by Olmsted. And it exerts the same kind of wonderful presence in the in the city of Troy. I mean, the ideals can be kept. They just have to be radically modified for vastly changed times, but especially because the times are changed. I mean, what is the essence of neoliberal America, right? It's the privatization of absolutely everything, the systematic and slow erosion 
slash destruction of public goods, publicly available goods. So the ones that we do have, public schools, public libraries, public parks, have to be cherished and defended. They can't be undermined from within, as it were. They 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 absolutely have to be redesigned for a, a post-MeToo and a post-Floyd world. They have to be inclusive, like genuinely inclusive. But as with the United States itself as a collective project, it needs to be held up to its own utopian ideals, right, of, you know, all men being created equal has to be radically, radically written to include um, something more than men and something more than propertied white men. And yet it has to be grafted, I think, upon that foundation. And and similarly, I just think Olmsted is the basis and the article ends up acknowledging that. Um, Dana, I take your point absolutely uh, to be absolutely right. I mean, it's kind of Olmsted versus Robert Moses is one way of looking at the um, battle of the 20th century. Moses, the evangel of the automobile, suburbanization, and kind of a, in his own way, a kind of hater of the non-automotive urban space and neighborhood. Um, perfectly happy to bulldoze Washington Square Park in favor of a freeway. Thank God the efforts against that were successful. So, um, We'll talk a little bit about, Dana, you live very near Prospect Park. It must be totally central to your and your family's existence. Yeah, Prospect Park is a huge part of my life, especially since we have a dog. So that's, you know, the the place that when she was little and had so much energy, she had to have long walks every day. We went there more often. But yeah, it's it's a it's I feel like living near a park or near the water in New York City is the equivalent of, of living near the coast. You know, like it's almost like there has to be some geographical feature within walking distance of your house or you feel like, you know, you just feel like you live in a, in an urban hellscape, especially on hot, disgusting summer days. So our our scape, you know, our sort of um, place that there's some sort of break from the gray asphalt of the city is Prospect Park. And I couldn't love it more. And how is it different from Central Park? I guess essentially it's just scruffier. And that's what I like about it. It's a place, you know, where there's a little bit less upkeep and manicuredness. And you don't as much have the feeling that you're picturesquely strolling in a Nora Ephron movie at every moment. (laughs) You know, you can actually sort of get lost in the woods and, and feel a little bit more scruffy and barren if you want to. And, you know, and it's just got so many great fun features that Central Park also has, what with, you know, carousels and playgrounds and all that stuff. I couldn't love it and, more. And Dana, in the woods, there are ruptures in space-time by which you get to meet your own ancestors and parents. <laughs> and you just wish that your mom as a child was as good an actor as you are. <laughs> <laughs> but my last thing to say about the urban space, actually, has to do again with anti-car activism. It just seems like that is such an important, important piece of this, not just in relationship to this one article, but just to any time we have a conversation about what public urban space should be. I mean, if we want to have the cheap version of making a shareable public space, like we don't have to design fancy, expensive parks with wonderful green swards or something. We can just have fewer cars. I'm just thinking about when Times Square became a plaza like it is now. There's that chunk of Times Square that's near the, you know, ticket booth and all that. The sort of Broadway show area uh, where at a certain point a few years ago, they just walled it off with barricades and put these rickety metal chairs in the middle of. uh, I just remember thinking this is never going to last. This is a crazy idea. How is traffic traffic possibly going to get around this? And this isn't unique to Times Square. I think this has happened all over Paris. I haven't been there in years, but apparently they're shutting down tons and tons of boulevards and just making them into bike lanes. And as soon as you put out some chairs and block the cars and make it possible for people to walk and ride bikes, the 
place is just better. You know, that part of Times mm-hmm. Square is still just yeah. as ugly. It's still approximately just as smoggy because there's still cars swarming all around it. It's just as noisy. And yet it is. it feels like a park just because it's a place where you can walk and sit and be. So anyway, Lovely. I mean, maybe this is because I just finished reading Jody's book about, no. about bikes. But I just feel so activist about why yeah. do we have so many cars? Like, let's stop just complaining about it and get I, rid of them. No, no doubt. And let me – I know we've gone long, but let me just quickly say, like, that should be the last word. That, that the whole – call me a snob. I do not care. The whole in every American's heart is the absence of the European-style plaza, the piazza, where an urban space – it's not not really a park it's part of the streetscape people stroll before and after dinner often tiny children strolling at midnight in spain in the in the plaza it's just we don't we don't have we just don't have that and if you say oh we have malls i mean exactly i mean that's that's the uh, i just don't even get me started so anyway let me just say we did this segment in part because, in no small part, because we're all the panel is just fans of Alexandra Lang. Um, her piece in the New Yorker is called "The Future of Public Parks." Check it out and shoot us emails. I know you all have a relationship to public spaces, vis-a-vis private ones, and we'll have interesting things to say. All right, moving on. Okay, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you got? All right. My endorsement this week is an entire book. I don't like doing these too often because it makes me feel like I'm giving people homework and we all have plenty to do. And I also did recently recommend another full novel, but I can't help it. I just read for the first time without realizing it was the first time. I thought I had read this book because I saw the movie and I read another book by the same author and I somehow collapsed it. But are both of you familiar with Howard's End by E.M. Forster? Have mm-hmm. you read the book? Oh, my God. Only one connect. of my favorite <laughs> novels so of all time. incredible. Familiar I mean, with. I honestly, seriously thought I had read this book until the week of my vacation just now when I was in, in the Bay Area doing some things. I wanted an audiobook to listen to while traveling and walking around. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll reread Howard's End as, a, as an audiobook listen, put it on, and then realized I never read Howard's End. I just saw the movie, <laughs> read oh, A Passage wow. to India around that same time. I love the movie. I think it's one of the best of those Merchant Ivory movies, and the casting is perfect. And it's, for what it is, great. But, I mean, like any movie adapted from a novel, it can't capture all of the, you know, omniscient narrative and the switching you know, voices and the novel is just perfect. That is just such an incredible novel mm, from the point of view book. of yep. characterization, you know, the, the the sort of themes of, of capitalism and, you know, the industrial era that it's developing and, you know, thoughts about London versus the country and all of that stuff is like perfectly integrated. But it also is hilariously funny, right? It's there's this really, really nimble narrator who is sort of semi-omniscient and you never quite know which character is going to become the protagonist for some chunk of chapters. And there's epistolary parts and it just all is so smoothly integrated. And I couldn't stop listening to it. I was obsessed on my whole trip with, with Howard's End and was just trying to get over with every encounter so I could clap back in, in my earbuds and listen to some more Howard's End. Oh my End. God. This, is this a- was a good reader. I don't remember the reader specifically, but read it in any form. I So Howard's End is my mother's favorite book. And I was a precocious girl, and I read it at summer camp the summer after fifth grade. And I remember still (laughs) this horrible girl at camp, like, you know, I was, like, taking refuge in a book on the dock at nap time. And uh, she, like, accused me of pretending to read fast to impress her. And I was like, oh, my God, reading is, like, the one thing (laughs) where I, like, don't have to deal with you and your bitchiness. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, so that's like my one memory of Howard's End. But also, 
whatever. They're like various like adult books that I just read as like a precocious little idiot. And I haven't read it since. So I have quote unquote read Howard's End, but like not. Well, then maybe, yeah, <laughs> so I, think my, I need to go back on to deaf it. Ears. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I think God. I could have because I could have told you the basic story of Howard's End and the names of the main characters or something. I sort of felt like, yeah, I get that book. But no, the book get, got me. It, it completely pulled out the rug and made me realize just how wonderful the novel is, like just a perfectly structured novel. What a great human invention, you know, and that that's one of them. But absolutely table pounded. All right, uh, Julio, what do you have? All right, so I, I, I sent out my RFP. I asked you guys to explain the relationship between birding and snorkeling. We got a number of wonderful responses, but uh, finally, a couple of weeks ago, we got, I think, the... the um, the one, the, the response that explains it best with the best bona fides, and I'm going to share it with listeners today. Hello, this message is in response to Julia's query about the culture of fish watching and snorkeling. I am the daughter of two professors of marine aquatic ecology. My father is a doctor of ichthyology, fish biologist, and my mother is a doctor of limnology, freshwater ecosystem biologist. Both of them are now retired and have taken up birding. As you can imagine, your question was the perfect fodder for our conversation at our Mother's Day dinner. They both confirmed that there is not an equivalent life list in the fish-watching realm due primarily to the fact that there are about seven times as many fish species as bird species on the planet. Also, the fact that one must get in the water to see fish makes them less accessible than birding, especially in places where the water is not tropical like a lot of the planet. They also mentioned that many of the world's fish are not easy to see when snorkeling since it's mostly a shallow water activity. Open ocean snorkeling is extremely creepy if you've ever tried it. I haven't, but now I wonder why. (laughs) (laughs) I'm intrigued. That's an incredibly intriguing parenthetical. And not all fish go to the shallows. However, people who are really into fish do create their own bucket lists. My dad's includes a whale shark and a manta ray and travel accordingly with masks, snorkel and fins packed. And there are definitely certain circles of fish nerds who swap stories of the species they've seen. But it's primarily in academia rather than the robust population of citizen birders out there. It sounded like you were also curious about the culture of snorkeling, which goes beyond fish finding, I think. One can be a snorkeling enthusiast without being motivated by fish, since the underwater worlds, fresh and salty, are so rich with all kinds of life. I know people who just always bring their snorkel gear when traveling. However, this might not satisfy your urge to check species off a list. So satisfying. Oh, my God. Beautifully written. Totally authoritative. That's the ideal listener response. Yes. Thank you all. Thanks to everyone who sent in other ones. They were all illuminating, but that one was uh, economical in its conveyance of information. Too many fish. They don't go where you can go. They're different all over the place. And apparently open ocean snorkeling is weirdly creepy, which is an enticing detail. So thank you very much, listener. Thank you all for indulging my call and response project. Oh, so cool. All right. Well, my uh, endorsement this week is of a book review that made me want to read the book with just like a keening, keening poignancy. The book under consideration is called The Book of Unconformities, Speculations on Lost Time by someone named Hugh Raffles. And the review is by uh, Kathleen Jamie, who it turns out is Scotland's national poet. Um, And no wonder. It's just so beautifully written. And let me just say that in like... The European piazza that fills the hole in my American heart, everyone wandering around for their evening constitutional, um, all the all of them are either poets or scientists, but each of the poets has a scientist within them, and each of the scientists has a poet within them, and apparently that's true both of Hugh Raffles, the scientist who wrote the book, 
and it's also true of Kathleen Jamie, um, the, the poet who wrote the review. It's in the New Statesman. It's online. We'll link to it. But let me just read a little bit from it. And unconformity is a geologist's term. It denotes a discontinuity in the deposition of sediment, a material sign of a break in time. But how can time break? Surely time goes on like an arrow through one damn thing after the next. And so the review goes on. It's kind of a, a book about, as I understand it, the intermingling of geologic evidence um, for, you know, it, it, as it as it narrates in a way the history of the earth with human history as it's intersected with the history of the earth and um, and how our own history and that of every other living creature becomes embedded in stone over time. It's just so beautifully written. And let me just read one more bit of it. So we begin to understand what an unconformity might mean. Something closer to a catastrophe. Time breaks. Futures are lost or stolen. There are fissures in understanding and knowledge. Lifeways that have developed over millennia for peoples or animals can be snapped. It just, it, 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 it's just it's just such a beautifully written review and the quotes from the book make it sound less like something dry than you know and scientific than something by Seabald or Bolaño I mean it's clearly a, a minor masterpiece um, and I trust the reviewer completely so I've ordered it so just to just to review because I know there's a lot packed in there but the book under review is called the book of unconformities by Hugh Raffles the reviewer is Kathleen Jamie the um, national poet of Scotland and the review appeared in the New Statesman, and we will link to it. I really think it's worth checking out all three of those. Guys, the FOMO, you know, really, really keen, really, I keep saying keen and poignant over and over again. That's how bad the FOMO was. It's disoriented me. And I got a snort out of Julian, the prized snort. But it was really fun. The reunion, compromised as it was, was great. Good show. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Feel better. Yeah, thanks. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our intro music is by the wonderful composer, Nick Bertel. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Mecca. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'll see you soon. Hello and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Today we entertain a listener question. Our listener writes, I was wondering if you could talk some time about your own experiences with editing, either editing others or being edited. Are there notable instances in which you found that editing saved you or your writer from indulging your worst tendencies as a writer? Are there instances in which you feel an editor sent you off course and damaged a piece that could have been much better? All right, Steve, I'm starting with you. Uh, what's your verdict? Editing, pro or con? This is both so juicy and so low-hanging. This is just really good ripe fruit right here because I am the classic example of a writer who segued awkwardly at best from academia to general interest, criticism, journalism, whatever, and my first editor was the wonderful Adam Begley, who's become a close friend. He edited the New York Observer's literary section. And 
he fought, I fought him, he fought me tooth and nail the whole way, like birthing Steve Metcalf, the non-academic. And I just thought I knew I was such a snob, a little New Haven snob. And I was wrong about everything. I mean, I was such a dipshit. <laughs> and I needed someone to just repeatedly say, yeah, you're, you're a fucking moron. Like, no readers following you there. And grow the fuck up. And that's what Adam did repeatedly. And I've just, I'll be eternally grateful to Adam for doing that. And I will say, to this day, every editor saves me from my worst tendencies as a writer. I just published a piece about Johnny Cash in The Atlantic. Like, very proud of it. I would say 60% of the work was done by my editor, who was like, thank you for this incoherent mess. Now, how are we going to turn it into publishable journalism? Uh, Ann Halbert, who I also venerate as an editor and friend who just was like, I, I got lost in it. I mean, I just get so lost in the labyrinths of my own spinning. And and just the, this extraordinary moment really, really earned her salary. I mean, she does it every day in every way. Um, but there was just one moment where she was like, I do believe in the kernel of something here. Let's work this at this together. And we just talked through it for, I mean, interminably on the phone. I mean, not line by line at all, but really piece by piece. And she just had this blinding insight, which was, Steve, when in doubt, chronology, right? Like, just let's just tell this chronologically, right? And then all of a sudden, finally, after like, painful childbirth right um you know a gestalt and then suddenly it sort of makes sense and you can turn it into a real you know operable piece of of criticism but i just i don't know about you dana i'm so curious to hear it and then from julia from her side of the equation but i'm a person who needs needs an editor and needs someone who's going to be patient at the key moment but dana i'm curious i you strike me as someone who like la di da, here comes Dana, clean copy Dana, Dana clean copy Stevens, <laughs> who, you know, who comes in and oh, it's maybe it's a shade under an A, it's just an A minus. Let's keep that 4.0 intact, shall we? <laughs> and like one use of the passive voice gets redone, and you're like, oh, there we go, 4.0, boof <laughs> off to <the> press. <laughs> I think that has more to do, honestly, and this is true of a lot of journalism, I think. More than clean copy, it has to do with filing on time, you know, and writing <laughs> to a schedule, which is agony and hard for everyone. But I know, and it's, yeah, it's, it's nothing, it's, it's, it's nothing about you. It is hard for everyone to do that, you know, and the mm. critic who keeps on getting critical work is the person who can have some combination of here is some comprehensible language and it was delivered sometime vaguely related to the date of the movie's opening. <laughs> so yeah, I guess well, I, fuck, I hit that bar. <laughs> fuck you and fuck you for thriving in the job. <laughs> I was like, I've been really, I now it can come out. I've been rooting for you to fail for whatever it is now, 20 freaking years. And here you are. <laughs> la di da Dana. The whole podcast is a long con to undermine me. <laughs> this is all taking a very strange turn. Dana, can we go back to your relationship to editing? I mean, this is honestly, this is a tricky question for me, guys, because as you know, in the past year, I've gone through some trauma in relation to editorial issues uh, having to do with the last stage of finishing and producing my book that taught me a lot the hard way about how crucially important having an editor and a good editor is. And I don't think I really knew that from just being edited at Slate, as great as the experiences as I've had here. 
in part because they have been pretty uniformly great. I mean, when I think of the people who have edited me on and off, these are not, you know, we're never my regular go-to editor, but Megan O'Rourke, when I first got here, was my mm-hmm. editor, and I learned a ton Star. from her. She was probably the person, Steve, who did what you described Adam Begley doing for you and sort of chopped the top two paragraphs of all my mm-hmm. long wind-up leads and kind of shifted me from a more academic style to a shorter reviewing style. Um, so that was really important. But I only worked with her probably, a, you know, a handful of times. Dan Coist on and off has edited me, usually as a filler in for whoever my normal editor is. And he is fantastic and different. You know, it's great how each editor mm. is different. And yeah. uh, Dan in particular, and he and I have a running joke about it. And I've joked about this with uh, others who have written for him as well, is that he's a little bit of like a. there's definitely some blood on the manuscript when he's done. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit of, of subtle butchery that's been done that all needed to be done, but that you sometimes have to work back into your own language. In particular, I used to always feel like Dan would cut out the more personal, if that if I had a personal aside or I used an I phrase, you know, and introduced my own personhood, that he would ruthlessly cut it. So I always felt like, oh, D- Dan hates I sentences and he doesn't think the critics should enter in their voice. But I don't think that is true across the board. I think he just he's attuned to that and sensitive to it. But when my book came out, it was this very sweet thing where Dan wrote me an email saying, I read your book and I really liked it. And he specifically said, and I love the parts when you bring yourself into it. And there's a little personal (laughs) note amid the criticism. And it was sort of like, Dan Coyce liked myself stuff. (laughs) It must be good then. Um, Anne Holbert also, who used to be at Slate, and as you say, Steve is now at The Atlantic. She's a magician. I mean, so tough. You know, not tough in the sense that she brings you down. I mean, she's she's a very rigorous. gentle person, but yes, very rigorous with text and is willing to make the kind of radical thing that decision that you don't want to hear, like, let's change the lead or let's frame it completely differently. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. something you can't just tinker with around the edges, but you really have to go in for a total rewrite. She's done that with me at The Atlantic. I don't think she ever did it slate, but, you know, she made a review that was okay, just so much better and about so much more than the book that I was writing about. Um, and then, you know, this is sort of like getting to the, the scarecrow, you know, at the end of Dorothy's lineup. Then there's John Swansburg and Forrest Wickman, who have been yeah, my longtime yeah. editors at Slate, who are just, you know, to me, they're my, you know, they're that thing that an editor has to be where they also become a friend. I think a great editor relationship, and Julia, I know you've had this with the writers at Slate when you were editing here, you know, they become a friend who you have a series of in-jokes with. And, you know, you are extra happy when they write an LOL in the, in the margin of your copy because they laughed at your joke or something like that kind of relationship is so meaningful and makes you such a better writer because you have someone to address your writing to. And there were times when I was at sea writing my book, which I don't even know if he's read, where I would think, write it for Swansburg, <laughs> you know, like, mm. write it for him and you'll find a voice in there somewhere. Um, so, yeah, but but I can also say that having that experience and then losing that experience is extremely painful. And the, the editor who first acquired my book at Simon & Schuster, whose name is Rakesh Satyal, and who I mentioned in the acknowledgments, he was one of those people, you know, a person without whom the book wouldn't exist, you know, someone that I could sort of address it to, but who, unfortunately for me, unfortunately for him, got a good job offer somewhere about halfway or so through my book and had to leave for a different publisher. But to have an editor leave when you're in the middle of writing a book, or it was a little bit past the midpoint, I guess, is really traumatic. And reestablishing that relationship during a pandemic with someone you've only met by Zoom is, is not an easy thing to do. So without, you know, naming any names or getting too specific, I will just say that hard experience has taught me that editors are all. And if I ever write a book again, I am clinging to my editor like 
I don't know, like Kate Winslet to her piece of wood in Titanic. <laughs> Before we double back to, to Julia, very quickly, I just want to say the only reason I omitted John Swansburg, I hear here, he's truly one of the best editors I've ever had and a lovely human being and friend. It was only because I was sort of going first and last with Adam and Adam and Anne. But yeah, John, John was amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I will just say as someone who spent more time on the editing side of the equation, it's so much harder to write. It's it's. I relate to be to like turning into just like primordial soup every time I try to write something. And, and I think fundamentally everybody does a little bit like the act of writing is an assertion of self that is scary. You are like, I listen to me. I have things to say. Heed them, you know, harky, harky. And it's it's a it's an assertion of self. It's an assertion of voice. It's like fundamentally a brave and vulnerable act. And, you know, it's good for editors to write every so often and remember how scary it is and how like the moments before, you know, when you file the thing and you don't get that immediate like, got it, thanks, we'll look whenever, you know, like the sort of like bleak teetering, like, did they get it? Did it go anywhere? Ah, you know, it's, it's good to like reconnect with with that. Um, and then, of course, with the experience of getting notes back and, and seeing whether they understood you and, and seeing whether they, you know, can support and develop your, that assertion of, of self and voice. Um, and as an editor of writers, like, I mean, that's the joy of it is is feeling like you are deepening and and sharpening the aim of the voice of the writer that you're working with, right? You're not trying to like bulldoze them into your voice, but you can kind of help them untangle their logic or you can point out where they're getting confused. And the the way to do that, in my view, has always been to just act as like an advocate for the reader and and just be like an articulate reader who's like, I don't understand this part or I feel like you got this mixed up or I was bored here <laughs> or, you know, whatever. Um and 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 then there's also the psychological aspect of, you know, if you're editing Dan Coyce, you can just be like, this part was boring. And he's like got the thick skin and the chutzpah to be like, fine. <laughs> if you're editing some other people, you, you know, you, you got to couch it a little differently and say, I think I think we might. Uh, how would I say that? Let's tighten this portion a bit. I think we want to get to the more urgent question you address in the next paragraph. So let's see. <laughs> you can't just write snooze in capital letters. <laughs> no. I will say, though, a point of pride for me is once long ago, Dan Quayce and Laura Helmuth had a debate for Slate Plus about uh, what style of editor is best. And Dan Quayce was like, I'm ruthless. And Laura Helmuth was like, I'm friendly. And then they had like a fake fake Slate fight about which was better. And And Dan described being edited by me the first time he wrote for Slate and how the document I sent to him was just like a, a nightmare of red track changes that made him want to cry and vomit when he opened his computer. <laughs> so he basically did the equivalent of I learned it from watching you. So I think I probably for, fall more on that side of the realm, just in terms of not being afraid to like really move things around or suggest a different structure or... Um, yeah, just like redeploy the writer's own thoughts and brilliance in a slightly different yeah. order or pattern or presentation. I think that's that's beautifully put, and it's great to hear it from the point of view of an editor. I mean, I'll just to, to sort of amplify a couple of things you said, you know, writing is basically 
all pitfalls on every side in the uh, in the middle of the way it's just pitfall after pitfall after pitfall like how do you somehow wend a path by which you do not sound banal and state what the reader already knows as obvious um but also not sound pretentious whereby you way overstretch in the other direction and try to be fancy and say recondite, but ultimately somewhat meaningless or overblown things, you know. And then this, the second one, I think, is just the language problem of stylistic problem of, you know, you want to, it to fly at least somewhat on wings other than pure statement of fact or something. I mean, it just has to have some it has to somehow get aloft a little bit without being lofty. It's just so easy to lose sight of your ultimate aim, which is to say something simply and make it be understood, you know, as you try to insert your own voice or say it in your own voice in a distinctive way. And, um, it, 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 and the most single, most amazing thing to me about writing Dana is that, when you read a good piece of writing, it does feel as though a it 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 you had thought it already, you just weren't capable of saying it, and b that it of of it it's conversational and just appears as though it was there all along. All of the labor, all of the agony, all the blood and guts and sleeplessness is just not evident in the writing at all, whether it was there or not in the first place. It probably typically was, and and it's it's you know not to oversell it, but the fact that you get to you know, even usable, you know, really genuinely, much less, much less, much less genuinely good copies is a minor miracle. You know, and it's a team, much more of a team effort, however much it begins in Lonely. I, I would even go so far as to say that having an editor who doesn't get it is better than having none at all. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I know that I've worked with editors before, not at Slate, but I've had the circumstance before of having an editor not seem to quite get what I was going for or like my sense of humor or really connect with my writing. But there's still a reader, you know, there's still a smart person who works with words a lot and is reading something you wrote. And so even if all they say is sort of like, you know, cut this paragraph and you think, I can't, I know that that paragraph is needed to establish my argument. You can think, well, why did they say cut it? Oh, because maybe it's too long or like you say, it's too recondite or, you know, maybe it's in the wrong place in the piece or something. Also would never let anybody use the word recondite. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. But yeah, I mean, I feel like even, even somebody hacking away with a rough hewn tool where you can sort of think whatever they're going for, I think I can respond to it is a heck of a lot better than something not being edited. And I think you really see that in the, the Substack era, you know, which is not to say that every Substack, I know and some of them are professionally edited too, and other people write so cleanly that maybe they don't need it. But I feel like more and more I'm seeing things where I think this couldn't have been edited by anyone because, you know, that that logic flaw would have been caught or the fact that, you know, the, the, every single sentence starts with the same dangling structure would be caught. You know, there's there's a lot of there's I mean, as long as we're talking about editing, there's there's a great dearth of good editing or editing at all that's happening right now. Uh, thank you, listener, for this question. Thank you guys for sharing your experiences being edited. Thanks for indulging my uh, editorial reminiscences. And thank you, Slate Plus listeners, for supporting our show, for supporting Slate uh, and for being with us. We'll be back with you next week.